Good morning. It is a privilege to be back with you all. Uh, I'm so grateful for McCartney's announcement today of you all hiring a, uh, a new, uh, well, at least a, a pastor in the interim while you continue to search for one. That is exciting. That is God at work. Um, and I hope that, one, I hope you never forget all the things that God has done and is doing in the life of New City. Uh, it's really amazing from a distance to watch you all and to see just your faithfulness and God's faithfulness at the same time. And whenever we see that sort of faithfulness, it is really an incredible thing. That is where God can truly work. So I always tell you that I'm excited to be here, and I'm really excited to be here. Uh, one is I always get to see faces that are very familiar to me, um, and it is a privilege to follow Melinda. She's going to be embarrassed, uh, but I was on staff with her at Covenant, and uh, it is a joy, really, to have served with her and, and just grateful for her, and so thank you so much. It's a privilege. It's fun to hear McCartney uh, up here leading worship, and it's, and it's a joy uh, to get to follow Melinda Bolin. So we're finishing up Book of Ruth. We're going to be looking at chapter four of the, book of, of the Book of Ruth, if you'd like to turn to that. I really have three things that I was thinking of this morning that I think God has taught us. Uh, this book for me, as I've studied it over the last few months, has really uh, been impactful. It's really changed my view of certain things. Uh, one, I think it is a great reminder to us that God is always at work. No matter what we are experiencing, God is always at work, and He is playing out His plan for redemption. He is gathering to Himself a people. If you remember back in uh, chapter 3 of Ruth, when Ruth finds herself finally sort of face-to-face in this setting with Boaz, who is going to be her redeemer ultimately, she says to him, uh, will you put your, your cloak or your cover over me? Uh, if we could go back and look, like do a deep word search on that word, that word in other parts of scripture is translated wing. And so it's this picture of like when God says to Israel that he longs to gather them underneath his wings. It is literally Ruth asking Boaz to put his wing of protection over her, his wing of care over her. And I think it's a great reminder to us that we are and that if we place our faith in Christ, we find ourselves under God's wing, under God's protection, under God's love. Um, but it's more than that. Secondly, I think the second thing that the book of Ruth reminds us is that, that we are loved intimately by God. That it's not just that God invites us into his bigger story, but it's also that God knows us intimately and he longs to draw near to us in and to be connected with that. Um, earlier this weekend, my wife and I were talking about um, uh, something that had recently happened with our son, and we both had heard about it in separate conversations. But basically what had happened was that he had invited another group of students off at college to be in a Bible study with him. And we were like, what? Like, it was just a shock to us because he's not usually the person who like initiates those sort of things. Like if somebody said, hey, we want to have a Bible study, would you be a part of it? He'd say yes. But we were shocked that, that this came from his own initiation and that he had, you know, made that little step to, to invite other people in. And so what we wound up talking about is we were talking about, you know, where was the first place that she and I had seen 
um, someone that we felt like was was 100% devoted in following God. And my answer was my freshman year in college. And what had happened was I had been invited, much like my son had just done, but I had been invited to a prayer group. There was some group of guys that were going to gather for prayer in somebody's room in the dorm. Um, and my school might have been like this if you went to college, but do you remember the days when like all the freshmen had to be in the dorms, right? And you just couldn't wait to get out of the dorms. You couldn't wait to be in an apartment or do whatever. Uh, but this was back in that day. And so we were all going to be in the dorm and they were going to gather and they were going to pray. And I thought, you know, I'm a Christian. I should go and pray if someone asked me to pray. So I got up earlier than I would normally gotten up. I hate to tell that part of the story, but I did. And I actually got to the guy's room a little before I think we were supposed to start. I mean, maybe a few minutes. And as I walked in the door, um, he was sitting at his desk, which number one, I went to West Georgia College, which is just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Most people didn't use their desk in their dorm room for a few reasons. One, if you remember, dorm rooms were really small, okay? And the other was we didn't use our desks in dorm rooms. And I'll let you fill in that blank, okay? But he was sitting at his desk, he had his Bible out, and he was reading his Bible. And it wasn't as though they invited me to a Bible study. And so I'm like, oh, this guy's going to be leading it. So he's reading his Bible, getting ready to figure out what he's going to say or what he's going to talk about. It was, and I don't know, this might've been the only time he ever did this in his whole life. But as a young man, it was so impactful for me to walk in and see someone spending time with God in that way. And it really, it really, um, Shook me. He wound up being in a fraternity that I pledged, so I asked him to be my big brother, and we kind of over the years built a relationship with that. But as a young man, it's still a, a, a major part of my story of faith was walking in that room, and even just for those few minutes, because as I walked in, he was like, oh, hey, come on in, everybody be coming. And he you know, put his Bible away, and he set it over his side. But just that moment of God showing me the kindness to see someone else um, intentionally trying to grow their relationship with him was so impactful. And so one of the things I want us to see in the book of Ruth is that God is caring for us as individuals, right? Why don't we get this story about these people, Naomi and Ruth, they're just ordinary people, even Boaz, very ordinary person just living their life. And yet we see throughout the story that God is weaving his story and he's drawing them closer and, and we're going to see today, there's so much tragedy and hurt in this story, and yet God is drawing them closer even through that. And then third is that, and the Carnal already mentioned this, but is that God is inviting us into a bigger story. And that becomes important too, because if it's just about me, then there's a lot of room for me there to be disappointed. There's a lot of room for me to have pride. There's a lot of room for me to have, um, to become self-absorbed and, okay, God, where are you? Why are you not showing up? I'm praying, God, what's going on, God? Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you here? Why aren't you being my sort of genie in the, uh, up in heaven and I can just tell you what's wrong in my life and boom, you kind of fix it. Um, It's important that we understand that God's inviting us into his bigger story as well. So it's important for us to see that he loves us and intentionally is playing out our story and drawing near to us, but at the same time, he's inviting us into a bigger story. So the whole book of Ruth has been about God doing and bringing about his story of redemption. 
But it's not just redemption in that broad sense that we were just talking about. But Ruth reminds us that the story of redemption, redemption is very, very much personal by nature, that God is at work in our life. It is real people experiencing real problems. So no matter where you are, I don't know where you are today, you may, be, you may feel like you're on top of a mountain when it comes to your life. You may feel like the stars are aligning and everything is going great, or you may feel like that you are deep in a valley. But the book of Ruth is a reminder that God is at work. He's shaping our story, and he's causing us to be more and more like his son, Jesus. So in this story, we get all of these hurdles thrown at Naomi and her family. So just kind of as a review for those of you who haven't been here over the last uh, few months, uh, we have all these hurdles. So we have the, the, the barrier of famine. So the first thing that comes into our story is that Naomi has this famine that happens. And so her and her family have to move and leave uh, Bethlehem, leave their home to go out and try to find resources for them. And they wind up in this place called Moab, uh, but that's the very first hurdle. But then Naomi faces another hurdle. All of a sudden, her husband dies. And soon after, both of her sons die. And in this culture, that would have been very much devastating. And so Ruth finds herself with even another hurdle. So not just sorrow and experiencing this great sorrow, but then she begins to experience poverty. Okay, real poverty. I remember one of the first times I ever saw uh, real poverty. I, I grew up in South Georgia, and, you know, they talk about like a tracks town, and our town was a tracks town. And so if you lived on one side of the tracks, you really experienced one sort of life, and it seemed like if you went to the grocery store there that everybody was doing pretty well. Everybody was pretty happy. They had their problems. But if you crossed over and went to the other side of the town, you would see a very different experience of the same exact town and the same exact types of people, and they were experiencing a very different kind of life. One of the most shocking pictures of poverty I've ever seen is I went to New Orleans even before Katrina happened, and we were doing a, um, a project to where we were learning about what it looked like to do urban missions within a, within a city setting. And so we went to this place called Desire Street Ministries. And at Desire Street, we saw an even greater level of poverty than what I'd ever been exposed to. But at the time, the director of Desire Street, uh, who was a guy named Mo Levert, he shared with us a new definition of poverty, which, which more and more has become an even truer definition of poverty. He said that, that true poverty is a lack of, yeah, a lack of options, right? And what I thought was, you know, in my life, when something happened in my life, I always felt like I had options. I never thought about it, but I always felt like I had options. I'd go to my parents. I could go talk to grandparents. I could go talk to friends. Um, you know, my, my parents had resources, so maybe they could help out, whatever it was. But, you know, when you're experiencing poverty, it feels like you have no options, and so that is where Naomi finds herself. She finds herself with no options. But then also Naomi gets another hurdle, her age. She's too old to go and remarry, even though her people, the people of Israel, have, have these things in place that could help her. She's, she's too old just to go out and remarry. So even that is a hurdle she has to 
overcome. And she has no heir. There are no grandchildren for her to, to help care for her. And so in our story in chapter one, uh, Naomi says of herself, I have returned empty as she comes back to Bethlehem. She just feels like God has been hurling, you know, sort of bomb after bomb at her. Uh, she feels like her entire life is just wrecked. And she says to the people of Bethlehem, um, call me Mara, for God has, has dealt very bitterly with me. But we remember that Ruth, or that Naomi doesn't return empty because Ruth is by her side. One of her daughter-in-laws has chosen to stay. And ultimately in chapter two, we will begin to see that this daughter-in-law will become a source of redemption for her. And the way that her daughter-in-law becomes a source of redemption is that her daughter-in-law meets a man named Boaz. And so by chapter three, we hear this wonderful love story. And you know, it's like any movie, if the movie just stuck with the conflict, it would sort of wear us down. Uh, as a kid, some of y'all may remember this. Did anybody watch the miniseries North and South when it came out? Okay, I remember, I don't know why. Um, I don't think my parents had us do this, but I sat through the miniseries North and South. And for a long time in that story, it just feels like one tragedy after another tragedy is happening, okay? And I'm sure that's how Naomi felt about her life. But yet at the end of chapter three, we see on the horizon, there is, there is hope. And that hope is this man named Boaz. And um, at the end of chapter three, when we think everybody's gonna live happily ever after, what happens? Boaz says, wait, there's, there's a relative who's closer to you than I am. And that relative must say no before, before I can say yes to you. And so he makes this promise that he'll go to the city gate. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 4 of verse 1 uh, with that part of our story. And it says this, Now Boaz had gone into the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. So Boaz turn aside, says to him, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now, one of the things I want you to notice is that we are not told the name of this relative, okay? Boaz refers to him as friend, and we're just told that it's a relative, and that's, that's going to become important here in a second. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took, he meaning Boaz, Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said to them, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you he said, and I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field of the, the land of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And the widow, I'm sorry, excuse me, let me reread that verse before uh, because it's very important. Uh, it says this, but if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he meaning the nearest relative, said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right and redeem it yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So let's pause there for a second. Um, Originally, the relative says, I will redeem it. Then uh, Boaz gives him a little bit more information, and he says, no, 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 no. Okay, I can't do that, right? So what is the difference? Initially, the offer is there is land that you can, that you can purchase, right? Um, that would have been, that's like saying, hey, here's a successful business, and you can purchase that business. Okay, and it's a business decision, right? But then Boaz goes even further, and he says, but if you purchase this land, you also get with it. And you know, what's interesting, let me go back one second. What's interesting is it's not just land. He also says that you'll get Naomi, who's a widow. And I think what we have is we have this relative who kind of does this really quick balance sheet in his head, right? And what he says is, okay, here's an investment opportunity, and it does come with a little bit of sort of negative or or debt to it, but it outweighs it. But what is it that tips the balance for him to say, okay, nope, okay, I can't do that. It's, It's Ruth the Moabite. Okay, now we don't know exactly why he says no. Could have been that he was married. You know, you know we, we can look at this in two different ways. You can look at this very charitable, or you can look at this as, as sort of the way that the text presents it, which is Ruth the Moabite, and he says, okay, I can't, I can't do that. And so he says no. Um, picking up in verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead. So at this point, um, Boaz has said, uh, the nearest relative has said no, Boaz has said yes. And so he's declaring before the elders uh, what his plans are. And he says that, that I want to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate uh, of his native place. You are witnesses of this today. So, uh, let's, let's think about this in two ways. One, at the beginning of the chapter, we see this comparison, okay? And, and maybe we're not quite seeing it yet, but we see this comparison between the near relative and Boaz himself, okay? And so they begin to be compared to one another. And we see the near, near relative sort of doing this math in his head and saying, you know, this may hurt way too much as far as my finances go, to take on a wife, to take on a widow. Even though I'm going to gain something, I'm going to gain an asset, this may be too much. Um, One of my professors in seminary is named Bruce Walkie. Bruce Walkie wrote this in his commentary uh, about this. He said, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage their community. Yet the wicked will disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves, okay? So so let that sink in for a second. When God in the Old Testament calls someone righteous, one of the characteristics we see of that person is that that person is willing to oftentimes disadvantage themselves 
in order to advantage someone else or their community or their family or the people around them. And yet when we see the Old Testament speak or God speak of someone who is wicked, oftentimes we see the exact opposite. We see that they will actually disadvantage the people around them in order to advantage themselves. And so, so rightfully here, we see this, this potential kinsman redeemer uh, say no. He says, you know, the positives don't outweigh the negatives, okay? He says, land, check, care for a widow, uh, okay, I'm okay with that, but a Moabite wife, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to say no. And Boaz, you may take this example. And isn't that true of us oftentimes? Aren't we constantly out like weighing, doing the scale of, of helping someone? So the school that I'm the principal of in, in, in uh, Orlando is on OBT. Anybody ever been to Orlando City soccer game? Anyone ever been? No, you guys should go. It's actually kind of fun. You've been to one? Okay, thank you. A drawdy steps up for me. I love it. You go to Orlando City soccer game, and they and the ref makes what they think is a bad call, which at a soccer game means any call against the team you're cheering for. I don't know why this is, um, but in soccer, it feels like any, any call. It could be the most obvious call in the world, but if it's against your team, it's a horrible call. Does anybody know what they chant? The ref belongs on OBT. That's where my school is. I always get mad when they start that chant. I want a shirt that says OBT isn't that bad or something. Um, But one of the things that is right around my school, matter of fact, I dealt with it this week. Um, I came onto campus, got there about 7.30. School is starting soon. We're about to be doing car line. 8.15, car line is going to be starting. We're going to have students being dropped off. And... um, we have a homeless man who's trying every door of our campus as I pull up. And the reason why he is, is because our campus is also part of a church. And what he's doing is he's, he's looking for someone at the church to ask if they can help him. And, you know, there is, at least for me, there are opportunities every day when I pull out of, out of my work to stop and help someone who is in need right? But let's be honest, what do you and I do? We do exactly what this nearest relative of Naomi and Ruth did. We sort of do this quick math. Now, I don't say that to say we should help everyone that we come across. I think, you know, the Spirit dwells within us. There are times that we are urged by the Spirit to step in and do something, and there are certainly times that we are not. But what I am saying is we shouldn't just look at this person in the story and say, can you believe he did that? Because oftentimes it is, it is very true of us. Um, here's, here's one of the things that I thought of. Uh, so I grew up with MTV. Some of y'all might not have. But they had this, this uh, show on MTV for a long time called Punked. I don't know if you remember the shows. There's a really funny moment that happened in that show one time. Uh, with a fellow named Nick Lachey. Does anybody remember 98 Degrees? Okay, Nick Lachey married Jessica Simpson. Jessica Simpson was from Texas. They didn't really know each other all that well. And the way this story plays out, which maybe it's because I'm from the South that it's so funny to me, but Nick Lachey has this beautiful house in LA that he's bought 
with his new wife, and it's just amazing. Um, and they have these these sort of tall plants, you know, so that like people can't see from the road and stuff. There's some privacy. And the way his driveway worked, like, I don't know Nick Lachey that well, I promise. I'm not like a big Nick Lachey fan. It's just because I remember the scene, and this is important. Um, there's shrubs, and the driveway sort of turns around and then comes in front of the house, but you can't see the front of the house from the road because of the shrubs. And there's a little plot of grass. Well, when Nick Lachey one day turns into his driveway, there is a mobile home on his grass. And the way that they play this joke is that um, Jessica Simpson's cousins need a place to stay. And so they are going to make their home on Nick Lachey's grass. And it is amazing to watch. It's just amazing to watch. You know, all of us have to go to family reunions, right? And we all probably have family members that um, sort of hypothetically have parked their mobile home on our grass before. And to watch Nick Lachey deal with this and to watch him at different times try to pull Jessica Simpson aside and say, oh my gosh, what are you, what are you talking about? And then over and over, um, the guy who's playing the cousin, uh, so it's him, it's his wife, it's his kid, the kid's running in and out of Nick Lachey's house because he's like, I gotta go to the bathroom. And he's like, Hey, Nick, man, where's the bathroom? Johnny's got to go to the bathroom, so he runs in the house. It's great. Um, But the reality is this. You know, we all weigh the cost of what it looks like to help someone. Um, Eventually, the way that plays out is that the, I don't remember, it's like the HOA guy or basically, but they have like a city official come and say, hey, man, you can't park a mobile home. Now, he's talking to Nick Lachey. He's like, you can't park a mobile home. And of course, Nick Lachey is getting more and more angry, saying, it's not mine. I didn't know the guy was coming. I don't. And the guy's like, we're going to have to fine you. And so it's just like about to explode. And finally, they, they break out the joke. But the reality is this. To follow Jesus is going to cost every one of us something. So I just got finished with my staff retreat, and one of the major issues that, I don't know if you know about this, but that we're starting to face in school is gender identity issues. Some of these issues that I think, I'll be honest with you, I think as a church, we have determined whether those issues are biblical or not biblical, right? Like if we go all the way through the LGBTQ plus an acronym, what we've done as a church in general, and I mean the church universal, not New City or not the PCA or not anything like that. I mean, as a church, I think one of the things we've done is we've lumped all that together into one thing and we've said biblical or not biblical and conservative churches had said not biblical. Other churches have other issues, but we've said not biblical. And so we've kind of held it at arm's length because that's just been our answer. Well, one of the hard things is that right now in a school setting, you have these questions being asked that, that I think in some ways haven't been asked before. Well, they've been asked before. It's not totally new. But, but what I mean is, is far more prevalent. So we were, we were trying to work through sort of how do we counsel students that come to us that are dealing with all of those things, right? And so it could just be gender identity. It, it could be all different things along that spectrum. Here's what's so hard for us. We live in a culture that has taken sexual identity and made it into 
the primary identifying marker of who you are as a human being. That's the culture you and I live in. So now let me like hit us between the eyes. Here's what we've done. We've taken something like, um, so, so is that true of us? Have we somewhat done that? I have a lot of people. I remember being at Covenant and on the door of Covenant um, on the sanctuary. Does anybody remember what it says? It, it used to say family worship center. And I remember someone coming to me and saying, well, I'm single. Does that mean I'm, I belong? Right? And I don't think they were asking in any way. They weren't asking us to scrape it off the door or anything. But what they were saying was that, you know, I'm not married. I don't have a family. Do I belong? And yet, how do, who is the most comfortable person in a church setting? Let me ask you that. Just in general, who's the most comfortable person in a church setting? I'll tell you. It's a man who is married and has kids. That's the most comfortable person in a church setting. Okay? Um, anybody who is not that is going to somewhat feel a little bit uncomfortable at different times. Maybe they feel like their voice is not heard. Um, maybe they feel like just because they're single, you know, you sit through a sermon. When's the last time you heard a sermon on singleness? You don't. We just turned it into a ministry, and there's a little singles ministry over here, right? But what if you're 45 and single? Would you feel comfortable in that singles ministry? No, because what are most singles ministries? They're 30-year-olds, like 20-year-olds who are looking for someone so that they can, in some ways, graduate from the singles ministry, And yet we don't hear that. We ourselves, I think, have somewhat elevated marriage to this identifying marker for people. Okay, that's not the sermon. I'm just saying we all need to think about this. Okay, that's all I'm saying. But let me back up. So our culture has elevated that. So we're talking about it um, in this setting where I'm discussing with teachers, you know, how do we handle this? And so the first thing we did We spent the first part, we talked about, you know, the six verses, the six places in Scripture that mention that. Um, You know, I can tell you about them. I just finished studying all that. You know, you have Genesis 19, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Leviticus 18 and 20, that is the Levitical laws um, saying to abstain from that. Uh, Then you get into Romans 1. I would encourage you, if you have someone who's dealing with this and you want to have a conversation with them, take them to Romans 1. It's the best place. You get a beautiful explanation of Paul from creation all the way through redemption of, of you know, that issue itself. And, and then you get into the, the pastoral letters, and you have it discussed there in the pastoral letters in two different places. But here, here's the conversation we had, okay? Every one of us have, in some way or another, had experience with sin, like with um, sexual sin, okay? And if we exclude ourselves from that community, then we're going to have a really difficult time talking to someone about what's going on in their life, okay? And we all have had to lose something for Jesus. And so um, let me tell you one of the most beautiful explanations of this I've heard. Uh, There's a gentleman named Sam Alberry who is from England. Uh, He is a single pastor, who would tell you that he has experienced same-sex attraction. And when he read, I want to give you this verse, Matthew 16, 
verse 24, it says this. These words will be very familiar with you to you. Jesus himself spoke this way about following him, and he said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And do you know what Sam Albury said? He said, every one of us have to deny ourselves certain things in order to follow Jesus. And he said, this happens to be something I've had to deny myself and I will for the rest of my life because following Jesus means more to me than me living out this thing that I struggle with or that that I have. Here's what I want to say to each one of us, okay? There is a cost to following Jesus. We agree to that? Your cost may not be about your sexual identity. It may be about something else. It may be about your pride. It may be a question of finance. There's all kinds of places where God comes. You know, we remember um, the, the rich man that comes for Jesus and says, you know, how, how do I follow you? What does it look like to be born again? And what's Jesus' answer to him? So everything you have and follow me, right? And what is Jesus saying? Is he saying all of us need to sow everything we have? No, what he's saying is there is something that you value and you esteem higher than me. And for you to follow me, I'm going to have to take that place. And the reality is that's true of all of us. And so one of the reasons why we call Boaz a redeemer is because Boaz is willing to give up that thing. He is willing to, to take a loss in order to do what he feels God has called him to do, which is to marry this Moabite woman named Ruth. So very quickly, um, the last point I just want to make for you guys is that redemption invites us into his story. It invites us into a bigger story. So we don't have time. We can't read it. But the way that Ruth ends, I think, is really beautiful. Because what we get is we shift from Ruth, okay? And in chapter, in verse 9 through 13 of this last chapter, we go back to Naomi, which is really interesting. I mean, it's just great storytelling because, you know, most stories, you watch a really good movie, it'll usually kind of come full circle at some point, you know, if you're really paying attention. This story comes full circle, but all of a sudden we see Naomi again. So Ruth and Boaz, they marry We're all so happy this other kinsman has bowed out and we can all have our love story. And, you know, if you're watching Hallmark, they they start the bakery that they've wanted to start, okay? And so everything is going great. And then all of a sudden the story shifts at the birth of Obed and it begins to talk about Naomi again. And we get this beautiful scene where Naomi's holding this baby. She's caring for this baby And the women of the town gather back around and they say, look, God has given blank a son. You know what they don't say? They don't say Ruth. They say God has given Naomi a son. Which I think is really powerful because the reality is this. A lot of times when you and I feel like God has not shown up for us in our story, it's because we're only looking at it from our perspective. Right? And part of the challenge for us is to realize, I mean, there's all kinds of stories playing out. I've told you before, at some point, I was five years old, I fell under a tractor, and it went over my arm. And my arm's fine, I promise. But one of the things that I didn't think about until I was older was my dad was driving that tractor. Like, my dad was part of that story. Okay? 
my dad had to pick his son up. Like, it wasn't just me. My dad had to pick his son up from under this, um, so it's a bush hog. Now, we didn't have a farm, so this was not normal in my house, I promise. And this is the only time I ever got to ride on a tractor, because after that, my mom wouldn't dare let me. But, um, but you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I've never thought about, there's other people in that story. It's not just my story. I can't fathom. I have two sons. I could not fathom shutting off that, um, that piece of equipment, getting off to go and see what has happened. And then pulling your son out, realizing there's this devastating injury and putting him in your truck and headed to the hospital. And you have no clue what's going to come in the next 10, 15, 20 minutes of that story. You know, I never thought about it, but it's his story too. It's not just my story. And so oftentimes, you know, we think of, oh, look at what God did for Ruth. Or we think of, oh, look at what God did for this person And yet there's so many people that their story is playing out. And so how does the book end? It ends with this beautiful genealogy where we are reminded that this is not just Naomi's story either, but it's also the story of the birth of eventually King David. And it's not just the story of King David. It's also the story of this other great figure in the Bible, the one that the whole Bible is about, the one that the whole Bible whispers his name, right? Which is a line from, a, from the children's storybook, if you didn't know. The whole Bible whispers his name, and we have the birth of this baby that we celebrate at Christmas, this great redeemer that would go to the cross and would not only, not only um, would he die for our sins, not only would he take on our debts, but, but much like what happens with Boaz, he would also fill up our bank account, right, with his righteousness. And so we have this beautiful genealogy because what it's reminding us is that the whole Bible is God's story of his redeeming of his people through the person of Jesus. And so in this darkest of times in the Old Testament, we have this little weird story about Ruth and Naomi that's thrown in there It doesn't really make sense until we put it in the light of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your great love for us. Father, we are, um, Father, as we said, every story in the Bible uh, whispers the name of your son. Every story in the Bible reminds us that you are there offering us redemption through your son, Jesus. Uh, Father, we hear of these, of these acts of faith by people like Ruth to follow Naomi to say, your people will be my people. We hear of these acts of faith by someone like Boaz to say, I will redeem, um, I will redeem this family. And, and Father, we could go through the whole Bible. And yet, Father, if we do not see our Redeemer in these stories, we miss out on the richness of what you have for us. So Father, one, today, will you help us to look back on our life and think about what has it cost us to follow you, but will you also remind us of the great joy that we've been invited into your story, into your family, and we are called children of God because of your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in in your son's name, amen.